Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom and Dawn Lister. From the Heart is a United Kingdom-based podcast. We're based in Lee-on-Sea in lovely Essex. We are joined today by Chloe Jane Prince. And Chloe is a food and freedom coach. Chloe, I'm so excited to welcome you onto our podcast we um or not we i um came across you um on instagram uh, and you were speaking about intuitive eating and i just really grabbed my attention i've practiced mindful eating for a number of years and it really has revolutionized my relationship with food and body image and intuitive eating feels very similar and i just um i had a little screen you know how when you come across something you like you have a little scroll and start stalking them so i started stalking you for a little while and, and but we've got to get you on. You talk so much sense. It's so straightforward. It's so simple. It's so wise. And I thought we have to share your wisdom and your pragmatism uh, with, with our audience. So welcome, welcome, welcome to From the Heart. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be speaking to you guys today. Really, really oh, good. Mate, um, we're really thrilled to have you. So I'm Dawn Lister, she, her, and I'm introducing uh, my co-host, Daniel Groom. Daniel, how are you? What have you been doing? Hi, Dawn. I am well. Um, I go by the pronouns of he, him. Um, yeah, I'm well today. Sun is shining. Um, I've got a, a book to share with everybody um, that I've been reading. Um, it's called Shuggy Bane. I don't know if anyone's come across it at all by Douglas Stewart. Um, it's a debut novel um, by Douglas and it's set in Glasgow and it's about a, a young boy who um, is a queer child and growing up in a family that is deeply ingrained in poverty and a mum who's an alcoholic and it's kind of all about the the fallout of trauma of growing up with an alcoholic parent and the chaos of kind of their family and it's such an amazing beautiful book it's really it's quite it's very difficult to read um but just utterly beautiful in the description it's so it's so deep the description and so kind of well thought out and for you know a debut novel when you just kind of think someone's maybe finding their feet and finding their words with writing it's 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 an absolute pleasure to read I haven't got to the end yet so I don't know what happens in the end but I I'm kind of I've started slowing down reading it because I don't want it to end it's a bit like when I watched Shit's Creek and I was getting to the last season I was like I don't want this to end I just I can't I can't give it up so, um, yeah, so I would thoroughly recommend Shuggy Bane by Douglas Stewart. Dawn, I hear you've been reading a book as well. I've been reading about 25 books. It's ridiculous. I've, I, I've, <laughs> I've, got the, I've got a problem. I can't stop ordering books. It's just like I, every day I'm ordering a new book. I now have at least 16 books sitting by my bedside because I get into bed and I'm like, oh, which one am I picking up? Is, is, I think I might need therapy about shopping for books. But I'm reading currently, she, oops, I just dropped something. It's fine. She is Fierce by Anna Sampson. And this is a book of poems. And I picked a really, really short one out to share today because it's relevant to what you're talking about, Chloe. So I'm going to read it quickly. It's called Today. It says, Today I will not live up to my potential. Today I will not relate well to my peer group. 
Today, I will not contribute in class. I will not volunteer one thing. Today, I will not strive to do better. Today, I will not achieve or adjust or grow, enriched or get involved. I will not put my hand up, even if the teacher is wrong and I can prove it. Today, I might eat the eraser off my pencil. I'll look at clouds. I'll be late. I don't think I'll wash. I need a rest. And that poem is by Jean Little. And I just, I read that and I was like, bloody hell, I get it. That, you know, I think we all need a rest. We need a rest from being told what to do, told what to eat, told how to look, told how to think, all of it. And I came across that when I was flicking through it the other day. I thought, I need to share that one with you. I think you'll like it. Beautiful. It, Love it. I was just going to say, it made me think about lockdown. <laughs> yes. Because actually, that was one of the beautiful things about lockdown was you didn't have to get dressed up. No one knew if you'd had a shower or not. <laughs> you didn't need to brush your teeth. You could be on a Zoom call in your pyjamas and a T-shirt. Didn't matter. <laughs> and that actually was quite freeing. <laughs> I found it quite freeing. Mm. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, I, that, that, that poem reminded me of that. And actually, I've kind of, I'm trying to, as, we, as we're in that transition point where we're kind of moving out of <laughs> one lockdown into, into a bit more freedom, you know, it's what bits of that that I've learned from lockdown do I want to take with me and kind of, you know, keep. And there's definitely that thing around actually, you know, when you get home, really being able to enjoy vegging out at home. <laughs> <laughs> making home home again rather than the office <laughs> and the yoga studio and everything else we've been using it for <laughs> we have we we spend a lot of time on in inverted commas don't we in life you know like being on being i don't know girlfriend wife mother friend your your job you know you have a title and, and so and then that has a persona that comes with it and actually to be able to just rest and drop all of that and just drop into yourself is really important. In fact, I was talking to one of my kids about this yesterday, about like, how high people's anxiety is because they're never allowing themselves just to be, just to be themselves. You know, they've always got to be performing or achieving. They're always sort of trying to multitask and, and plan for the future. And actually we need those those rest times. We need, we need that time to chill out. And, I really feel like all that stuff ties in with what we're going to talk about today. So let's let's kick it off. So Chloe, how, firstly, how are you? And how did you get to be doing what you're doing? And what do you do? That's not a lot to answer, is it? Let's <laughs> see if I remember all the questions to start with. Um, so yeah, I'm Chloe, uh, she, her, and um, I... I'm having a really good day today actually because um we have mo we moved into rented or we moved down to seven in october we've been stuck in rented for a while and actually have had removal companies down this morning i was very glad that they leave they left by 12 o'clock to give us time to do this and that worked out perfectly and they've just been dropping the stuff off from my um my house that we've just we're just selling on it's selling on monday so everything feels like it's falling into place which is lovely and a relief selling moving houses is always stressful so it's been actually really relax which is nice for a change um and what i do i am a food freedom coach as you said i help people heal disordered eating so if they're struggling whether would that be with um, eating disorders i work with people who are who don't need clinical help with with eating disorders as well as disordered eating and wherever they form onto that spectrum 
um, ultimately just so they can live a life they want without the guilt, anxiety, worry um, and rules around food then then over spilling into lots of different areas of their life and stop stopping them really being happy and enjoying the good in life rather than just having existing can often be how it feels. Mm. And how, how did you get to do that? How, what put you on the path to sort of first of all, understand that this was a way to go versus diet culture. And I'm sure we'll talk about that maybe a little bit more in future. But and how did you how did you end up on that path at all? Yeah, so um, it's, it's been a journey. Um, I started um, struggling with food probably when I was in my about seven, eight, nine years old. Um, I was bullied an awful lot. I then used food as a way to comfort myself um, and uh, was in a larger body. I was about, you know, 11 stone by the age of 10. I then um, was sexually abused by my teacher um, over about a period of about six months. And um, after that stopped and I'd reported it and everything, I started losing weight. And some of that was natural. Some of it was was dieting. Um, and then when I went to the court case, actually, um, I, we saw the wife of the teacher and she was in a much larger body. And that really was what started my association being in a larger body with being unsafe. Um, and so I then developed anorexia and I it was it's a difficult process actually because I started losing quite a considerable amount of weight went to go and get help because my period had stopped and various other things I'm sure will come into BMI later um, but wasn't allowed to have the eating disorder support that I needed because I was still in um, I, I wasn't thin enough and my BMI wasn't low enough at that point to be given the support I needed and that really exacerbated the period that I struggled with and I had anorexia for about 10 years um, until um, I sort of decided slash gave up on on struggling as much as I was and life being really really difficult and that is when I really had to learn to feed myself for the first time really in a healthy way because you know when we're zero to seven eight nine ultimately we're we're being fed by parents so actually I came into recovery not actually having had ever fueled myself and fueled my body in a way that wasn't done by somebody else or governed by an eating disorder so it was a real process um during that I actually was diagnosed with two autoimmune conditions which also meant that I had to be more intuitive in the way that I lived um, I went over to India um when I was in a really really bad place for a retreat and found myself <laughs> that's really cliche but I did um and came back a new person being able to listen to my body more and that was when I really started my journey to intuitive eating and then train so that I could help other people it was something I always wanted to do because I think when you feel like you're so stuck with disordered eating eating disorders um I was I always knew I wanted to help people but ultimately you know I you, I didn't know how to get better myself for so long wow for, firstly thank you so much for being so open and honest and sharing that I'm sure what you said is going to touch so so many people and so many people will be able to relate to what you've said and also, I'm just really sorry that you did have to go through all, all of that. That's, that's, that's really sad. So, you know, um, you know, thank you. Thank you for being so brave to share. It's made me the person that I am. And I generally do believe that it's part of my purpose is to help others heal. And so whilst it wasn't the best experience, I definitely wouldn't choose to go back and relive it. I'm really happy doing what I am and I wouldn't be doing it without the experience that I had. Does that make sense? Perfect sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we speak we speak about disordered eating. Could you could you explain a little bit more about 
what that means. I mean, I think a lot of people look into um, food, diet culture, the way people's bodies look, and they have, they immediately make assumptions about that person based on what they look like. So if they're trim and muscly, they've got their life together, they're sorted out. If they're maybe carrying a few extra pounds, and that's always debatable, isn't it? But let's go there in a minute. Is it even a few extra pounds? I mean, is that even a thing? Um, then, you know, they're out of control. They don't care about themselves. They're messed up and um, they're lazy, you know, all that stuff that goes on. But actually, you know, there's an awful lot more going on than, than what you see. That's, that's telling you something about yourself versus really what's going on for that person, about your opinions. So, I mean, what, what is, if someone were to ask you what disordered eating is, what is it and what kind of person might be eating in a disordered way? I think ultimately anybody can be um, and it, I think it's like so many of things we see things as, as so black and white or try to see things so black and white in humans and actually everything is a spectrum in the same way that we all experience a level of anxiety and there's a spectrum between how much that actually impacts our day-to-day -day life we all experience anxiety as an emotionality in the body right you know it's part of our human experience disordered eating is a spectrum just in just the same way all the way from people who um, have a generally really healthy relationship with food but may feel a little bit guilty after they've been for a pub lunch and and maybe had a drink and burger and chips or, or maybe getting a little bit anxious and having a bit of post um, pre-event restriction where we actually try and manipulate what we eat before we have a big meal not because we're trying to support our bodies and this is the difference between disordered and, and not disordered really is what's the intention is the intention to support the body or is the t intention to manipulate our shape and weight and obviously that then goes down all the way through to um, what we would clinically diagnose as being eating disorders as part of the DSM-5, the St Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health, where we actually categorise people in, in terms of having eating disorders that ultimately are having a real impact, um, a severe impact on their health, well-being and, and, and socially as well. But really that impact doesn't just start where, where the eat disorders start. That's something that we can experience no matter where we are on that spectrum, depending on how much it impedes our daily life. Um, but really disordered eating is where we are making decisions based on manipulating our shape and weight rather than what feels good for us in our bodies, if that makes sense. And most people probably don't even know what it is nowadays you know one of my mantras is follow what feels good follow what feels good for you you know I'm, I'm chilled um, and I follow what feels good is something that you know I do every day it's part of my DNA now but if somebody said follow what feels good for you I was like I don't know what that is that I wouldn't have known years ago and I think that's one of the barriers to intuitive eating is that we're so disconnected from ourselves and our bodies I mean that's a huge thing if someone is, I mean I, I, like you, struggled with anorexia when I was a younger person, up until I was about 17, and then had bulimia till I was about 30. And um, if someone had asked me to do what feels good, I wouldn't have had a clue. Like, that would have, and actually would have terrified me. So that would have made me feel very, very out of control. And I'd be like, what makes me feel good is um, saying how many calories I've had today and making sure I've burnt the right amount off and not ever feeling full. Because feeling full meant I was greedy. You know, no one likes a greedy girl, do they? Um, so how do you get people, how do you get people to that place? You know, what do you do so that you say, well, if someone comes to you and says, I want to feel, you say, do what feels good. And, if, how, and they say to you, what feels good is being hungry, because that's what I would have said. That was my mantra. 
you know, feeling hungry is good. You know, and if it was a growl in my stomach, it gave me such an endorphin rush. I loved it. I loved it. So how would you deal with that? So I think the really, and this is something that I think is missing in the eating disorder service as it stands, is we're very food focused with the way we treat eating disorders and disordered eating. And ultimately, disordered eating has nothing to do with the food in the same way that alcoholism has nothing to do with alcohol, um, you know, drug use, sex addiction has nothing to do with the drugs or the sex either. Ultimately, it's a coping tool. It's a mechanism that we're using. As you said, control is a massive thing for people with disordered eating and eating disorders. It's a way for us to feel safe in the world that we're in, um, to feel loved in the world that we're in. So ultimately, the way that I start working with people is helping them to learn to feel because so many of us aren't taught how to feel emotionalities a lot of the people I work with would probably um relate to being empaths or HSPs highly sensitive people they feel emotionality so strongly that when they're then taught big you know big girls don't cry or boys don't cry and other really damaging language that we hear growing up we then have to find a way to numb to not to not feel these feelings and, and it depends what coaching what coping tool we then we then reach out for so learning to feel to heal is a really important part of the work but ultimately you have to meet people where they're at you know some clients i will because of where they're at in terms of their journey um, and health you may have to use a more sort of food focused approach approach first to enable you then to support the therapy because ultimately a starved brain is not going to be that easy to 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 treat but as you said loads of times in the podcast um you know trauma is stored in the body so ultimately feeling to heal is how we move through trauma as well as then helping people to develop their healthy coping toolbox and i always think that we should add before we take away let's add healthy tools let's show you how to feel safe in your body let's do all of these things before we even look at changing the food and ultimately often the, ch- the food starts to change before we even get there because it's not it's not about the food it's about what we're using the food for and you can't if you're not feeling safe in your body without controlling food if we then take away the control of the food what have you got left nothing it's like having that safety blanket taken away or that safety net taken away and you just fall right you've got no no safety at all but you can't resource that in your body ultimately we we have everything we need within our bodies already and it's just about learning how to access that i say that like it's like ding you just learn how to access it, it's done but do you, hopefully that that makes some sense yeah it, it makes perfect sense um yeah daniel i can see you, you wanted to say something I was, I was just gonna say i think you know the relationship between trauma and stress and food seems to be so intrinsically linked, doesn't it? And there's such a, you know, people that are able to have positive experiences around food and eating, actually, the whole notion around food can be something that's quite celebratory or very much intrinsically linked with positive memories, maybe with to do with family or, you know, times when they've, experienced new tastes or new types of food or you know in relationships where food is you know very much part of of that but actually food on the other hand can be the way that people really harm themselves as well and it's 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 fascinating to think you know food is one of the few things that we can have complete control over (laughs) within the way that we feed ourselves 
but we know that actually if we don't feed ourselves that our body then starts to become depleted or will close down in certain ways in 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 long periods of 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 starvation or kind of eating where they're maybe just eating enough and i just think it's so fascinating our the, the, the relationship that we have between our mind and, you know, there's an awful lot of study that's been done recently around the gut actually being as intelligent as the brain and trauma and our emotional response being so intrinsically linked with our nervous system and with the relationship that we have with food. And maybe it would be interesting to hear your point of view on that. Yeah, and I think something I should mention as well is that really disordered eating can happen in anybody. Um, and I mean anybody in terms of shape, size, race, gender, you know, ethnicity, anything. You know, I think we so often associate disordered eating with being a smaller body when actually food can be used, as, as you said, to cope in terms of, you know, under eating and using it as a way to control our intake to feel in control and feel safe we can also overeat as a way to comfort to and and to fill that hole within us that we can feel if we aren't really connected to who we are and i think that it's really interesting if we look at the evolutionary there's been loads of studies around how we evolved around food and you know even if we look at children there are very few things that children can control um and yet they have control over what goes in here you know we talk about fussy eaters and especially with young children who are fussy you know it's a, something that we have such access to and one of uh, my mentors used to say food is one of the most acceptable and um, available drugs on the planet and you know it is so true in both senses you know you go through a breakup and you know people find them so you know we'll go off you know Ben and Jerry's is one of the typical things people say right in the same way that if you're anxious maybe you skip a meal um, but from an evolutionary perspective food plays a huge role in our stress in our parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system off you know our rest and digest fight fight freeze um you know we were designed to survive in periods of famine and feast we were designed to cope with periods of restriction where there wasn't enough crops wasn't enough you know food around because of droughts and whatever else happened and we didn't have fridges and freezers and shops that we could go to and then when when we would have uh that when the food would be plentiful then um, we would then stuff our faces and that's something that we you know and I think that something I see today is that 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 um, system in the body is, is still exists evolutionary a lot of things haven't we're not built in for a world that we get to thrive in we're built for physiologically we're built for a world where we still get to survive and this is one of the things that we really struggle with I think is actually learning to take some of that um, to surrender, to let go and allow ourselves to live and in, enjoy life with the sadness and the heaviness and everything. Um, but ultimately, if you are restricting, that is a stressor on the body. Mm. You know, in the same way that if you're exercising, whilst exercising is, you know, is, is important for us to feel healthy to an extent. If you are overexerting your body, overstretching your body in terms of water needs, in terms of food needs, in terms of, um, you know, actually energy, energetic capacity, you know, that is a stressor mm. and it all plays a role. And if, and in the world that we live in, there's so much stress, so much anxiety because we aren't taught to heal. And also because um, we, 
have become so disconnected from what we need and we don't know how to let go manage stress and enjoy life really as well i think it's really interesting something that you just touched upon around what's accepted now as normal <laughs> in terms of you know say someone that is going to the gym on a regular basis so you know they would be encouraged to eat more to support that but actually if you're not eating more then the body is then having to find ways of feeding itself because they're the overexertion of the body <laughs> is then having to find some way to to, to, to fuel itself isn't it and, and depending on what you're doing whether it's cardio whether it's weight or you know whether it's kind of um, stretching of the muscles which all involve different ways of the body needing to be used or, or the, the fuel of the body being used in different ways but actually this kind of world that we live in now where it's generally accepted for exercise and diet to almost come hand in hand with each other and it is important but like you've reiterated everyone has a unique experience <laughs> so to tell someone to do something in a certain way without you know getting to know them really really well and understanding their eating habits their exercising habits their sleeping habits the stresses that they have on themselves and the past stresses that they're coping with how you know you can't you can't tell someone can you oh this is the right way to eat or this is the right way to exercise without being fully ingrained in that person's psyche and their, it has their to self. Be holistic it yeah. has to be so holistic and I think that's so important with the work I do and I talk about it not being a food-centric approach because it's about the whole person as you said their history the way they live the way they move and and the intentions behind those things um, and ultimately we live in a, in a in a society where we're told the less food the better and the more exercise the better and actually I don't think that is healthy I really it's not healthy you know we're we're not supposed to run our bodies on as less fuel as we can you wouldn't run your you wouldn't go oh, I'm gonna see if I can get 30 miles out of the rest of this tank it says it can only do 15 but you know your car would just go kaboom right it would stop you you would have to go and get more petrol to put in the car um, and yet we expect to do the same with our bodies we expect to be able to run on empty and continue running and pushing and forcing them without consequences and ultimately it all comes with a price to pay and one I pay now still do you feel like um gosh, so much wisdom in everything you said I, I kind of don't know where to start but do you I want to just ask do you feel like um there's a lot of I feel like there's a lot of guilt and shame around food and I think I'd like to talk a little bit about that I was I I'm, I've noticed in the past since I've been intuitive eating which has probably only been for the past three years really I started doing mindful eating and that's kind of very similar. It was very much, I did, I did it on a retreat one day. I, I decided on this retreat, it was a mindfulness retreat that I was going to eat in an extremely mindful way. I want, I wanted to notice what was, um, what my relationship to food was. So what I did was when I was eating, I ate really slowly. So I kept putting down my knife and fork and um, you might disagree with this. I don't know, but it was, and I don't certainly don't eat like that now, but it was, it was an experiment. I wanted to see what I was feeling while I was eating and what I noticed was I felt slight panic and um, so I wanted to I've always been a really quick eater 
and it was like there was two things came up one was shame i didn't want people to see how much i was eating and the other was there isn't enough and so they were my two things that came out i don't know what i well i know where the shame came from but i didn't know where there wasn't enough came from or that there wouldn't be enough um and that and so there was a lot of fear and actually once and that made me very emotional and i kind of did it for the five days and i took really took my time over it and my relationship with food very much changed after that. I didn't, I do still sometimes eat in that way, not with that same lens on, but just because I'm enjoying it. I, I eat much more slowly. I regularly leave what's on my plate regularly and I regularly have seconds. So I have what I feel like and I'll go in the fridge and if I fancy a little chocolate yogurt, I'll have it. And before I would have felt bad and I would have sneakily had it and then had a second one. Whereas now it's like one is enough and I'll really, or maybe I'll have two, although it doesn't, I don't have a massive sweet tooth, but I would, because I really feel like, I feel like, what do I want? What do I need? And then I respond to that. And I, and although I'm still maybe larger than some people would like, and actually I don't really care. I don't care what other people think. Um, the doctor said to me, well, you could do losing some weight. And I feel like saying, well, you could do getting a life, but there we go. Um, but it's, you know, I, I feel like I have a really healthy relationship on the whole with my food now. So where do you think, going all around the houses, aren't I? But where do you think that guilt and shame comes from? And what's it about? Okay. So first thing you mentioned was, was guilt and shame. You also mentioned anxiety quickly. And I want to explain this quickly because it's a bit easier to explain and go into detail than the guilt and shame. So as I talked about, about the feast famine process that we went through, our body is set up for a world where there is scarcity. And ultimately the body doesn't know the difference between self-imposed scarcity of food and scarcity. So if you're on a diet, your body will assume that you're going through a feast period. And that creates a lot of stress and anxiety in the body. Because naturally, when we were in that state, we'd had to run for food, to hunt, to go and hunt animals, you know, run to a different part of, you know, the, the place that we're in to, to get food. So that anxiety and that nervousness is something that is a physiological response to the way that we've evolved, as well as um, a learnt response, a response to diet culture. Um, I just think that's really important for us to understand because it is that real fear in the body when it happens. Um, in terms of guilt and shame, it's something that so many of us experience along with the anxiety around food. Guilt and shame is, are such heavier emotionalities and something that I feel has actually been entirely created by the society that we're living in rather than being a mix of, of physiological and, um, and the emotional. Uh, we live in a world where we're taught that less is better and you know in terms of food intake and that you know as you said I think earlier on you know being in a larger body is something that we deem to be lazy greedy shameful um, and so if we do feel like we've overindulged it, it would then make sense that we were then one anxious about the impact that's going to have on our shape and weight but also feeling guilty and ashamed of what we've done um, and ultimately we live in a society where we are told that if we do not fit, fit the ideal body type aesthetic that we are not good enough um, and we see this again and again, not only um, through the diet industry selling the products that they sell themselves, but also beyond that in terms of media. You know, an example I always give is if we think about Hollywood actresses, um, we have people like Charlize Theron um, and Angelina Jolie, uh, you know, Scarlett Johansson, all, you know, 
you know, typically attractive women, they always end up with the guy. They always have high high flying or powerful, strong jobs. If you think about the actresses that exist in, in larger bodies, we think, I think about people like America Ferreira, who plays Ugly Betty, um, Bridget Jones, um, who else was, uh, Rebel Wilson, play quite slapstick roles, trials and tribulations. So not only are we told from a young age, things like um, nobody likes a fat girl is something that I've heard a lot of clients be have said that they were told growing up we see it reinforced with the media again and again you need to be thin to be loved you need to be thin to be attractive you need to be thin to be accept acceptable and attractive and that's something that we carry within us and so when we see evidence for the fact that we're moving ourselves further away than that not only is it the guilt about what we've eaten but it's the guilt about what we're doing to our bodies we're moving further away than something that is deemed to be good enough and worthy and that's how I see it I don't know how that resonates um no that that really that really massively resonates I think um we we are social creatures aren't we so we look out into the world to set to to understand how, where we fit in that's what we do from the minute we're born we look at our families and our peers and our friends and, and we look for a place to fit in. And, you know, we and we nobody kind of wants to not fit in. They don't want to be somebody different. So if they are seeing people who are larger being less successful or objects of, I don't know, abuse or ridicule, you know, you're, you're going to want to not be in that role yourself you're not going to want to be in that place and then if for whatever reason you can't lose the weight say you're naturally a bit heavier that's how your body goes some people you know nobody looks the same we're all built completely differently then you spend your whole life like fighting against just being who you are like and that's a horrible place to be yeah and it's something we see you know in in people that identify as identify as male as well you know it will be manifest seems to manifest slightly differently um we seem to have a real push towards muscly and muscly lean um and and actually we see eating disorders and disordered eating in men manifesting in slightly different ways as a result as well but it's also intrinsic in terms of the information that we are given that we are told that we have to look one way to be stuff I just think it's important that I talk about it from both from both sides because I can I can definitely you know my experience is somebody that is you know in sex and gender a, a woman and ultimately that is my experience and therefore how I identify but ultimately I work with male and female clients and actually seeing how it represents albeit that intrinsically the cause is the same um it doesn't necessarily mean that it looks the same way for, for us mm -hmm. oh, I, I would just add to that Chloe that actually being in a male body that is generally a, a slim to skinny male body adding on top of that being an effeminate man as well that really plays havoc with where do you identify within what is your body ideal the, supposed the, to be <laughs> yeah or the, the way that you know the way that um we're sold <laughs> what a male body should like and then the, the the added complexity that many gay men experience is you've got the kind of general male marketing 
around diet, fitness, exercise, and bulking up <laughs> rather than getting slimmer. Um, but then that seems to be amplified when it comes to being in a in a gay world whereby that body needs to look like perfection yeah yeah yeah. and it's something Um, that I you know my my brother is gay and actually has struggled with alcoholism and drug addiction his whole life and he still does um and ultimately that's the pain that we have put him through as a society and I think this is why it's so important that we learn to see ourselves beyond the body we are people and we are people because we have beautiful souls inside of this meat suit that we have, right? You know, why why do we care about what the receptacle is? Sorry, I think I over, I cut you out. No, 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 no. It's you know, it's 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 a struggle that I'm you know constantly dealing with myself as well. You know, that feeling of actually I don't fit in. I don't fit into the gym world. I don't. I, my body fits in weirdly to the yoga world but actually the yoga world is riddled with its own problems around body shape body size eating is just ridiculous you know in terms of you know you using using sutras that were written thousands of years ago around shaming people for what they eat now you know it's completely completely eradicating any kind of deeper understanding of what it is is basically people just using using ways to shame other people and it's it's absolutely rife in dawn and i's business it's it's in fact it's it's so worrying that we've tried to make a conscious effort about making sure that we advertise using people with just normal bodies we're really trying to avoid those kind of bodies that are associated with fitness and specifically yoga because actually it doesn't represent hardly anyone that comes in our studio <laughs> but yeah if you look at normal. all the mark no it's not it's not normal no no definitely. well there's a spectrum isn't it Oh, and I think this is the problem when we try and put everybody in a box and we do this again and again in different parts of society, whether it's how we identify, whether it's who we feel we are, whether we feel we should be one of the popular kids or whether we should, we're one with the nerdy kids. Like from a very young age, we start to put ourselves into containers and boxes. And ultimately, I think that's a societal thing. But none of us really do because we're all unique and we're all individuals. And I really wish that we could celebrate that more instead of you know feeling like you know the societal pressure is to conform to be who we should be in terms of how we look how we behave um and it just it just it doesn't make sense to me it really doesn't you know from a logical perspective no I was just reflecting that I think like in life we're all trying to be happy aren't we like in whatever we do we go to a yoga class because we enjoy it or we think it's going to make us feel happy or peaceful we go for a run because we like running. Well, I wouldn't, I hate running, but Daniel might like running or because we think running might make us fit and then we'll be happy. Um, we join a diet club because we aren't happy with how we look. And so we think, oh, well, if I go on a diet, I'll feel better. And I, I kind of think a lot of the stuff we do try and make yourself feel happy and be more content, it actually just makes us bloody miserable, including 
dieting. I mean, I don't, I threw all my scales about a year and a half ago. Best thing I ever did. I thought best way for me to work out if I need to lose a bit of weight is to see if I can zip my jeans up. So I have a pair of jeans in the drawer, which I know that if they're a bit tight, I probably need to cut back on the chocolate yogurts. Um, and, and maybe that's wrong. You can maybe tell me, maybe that's the wrong way to do it. I don't, I don't know. And also how I feel in my body. If I start to feel sluggish and tired and like, oh, I probably need more water. I probably need to like move a little bit more. So I kind of check in with how I'm feeling and then adjust my life to fit in with that. But I think that culture does not encourage us to feel and check in with what we need. It's like they're trying to constantly sell you something, sell you your inadequacy, your failure, your skinniness or fatness or your even, you know, the color of your hair is wrong. So let's go and spend hundreds at the hairdressers. They're always trying to make us fit into some mold. Then what do you and, think? and trying to fix us yeah when actually we have everything we need already inside us we don't have the i call it the if when then game if i do this then i'll be happy when this happens then i'll be happy or relaxed or you know with like with house moving i used to say when we've moved then i'll then i'll feel safe and calm and relaxed mm-hmm. actually i can choose to feel that now mm-hmm. i don't need somebody to sell me something to fix me i'm not broken i have everything i need within me already and it's learning to be our own medicine which is really the answer to being happy and being happy also means feeling the heavy stuff you know you can't have one without the other you can't have the light without the dark I think there is such a resistance to feel the heaviness because we're told don't cry don't feel don't scream don't have a tantrum let's teach kids and and adults how to express their emotionality how to move through emotionality in a way that's safe and safe for them and safe for the people around them and teach them to be their own medicine. You don't need anything to do that for you. I love that expression. Be your own medicine. I think that's incredible. What a wonderful way to express it. Because we are, we know everything we need to know already. We just maybe don't like what we know. <laughs> I don't want to feel sad. Give me a piece of chocolate. I don't want to feel sad. I'll have a glass of wine, you know, or I'll go and work for an extra 10 hours. So I don't have to face the feeling. How, how is it that you help people to address? What would you recommend as, you know, you suddenly take away, say to somebody, you know, I want you to intuitively eat. How would that look? It's not where I start. Okay. It's not where I start because the barriers aren't the food. Okay. It's the trauma. It's the beliefs that I'm not good enough. It's learning how to feel their emotionality. So that's always a big chunk of work that I'll do before we even start looking at food, because ultimately food is going to be a coping mechanism unless you've added enough for them to step away from that, to not need the food or exercise or alcohol or whatever that that drug may be for them. Right. So that makes sense. Right? It's, all, it's all about and tapping into the body because we can't learn to eat intuitively unless we're connected. What does hunger feel like? What does fullness feel like? How can we feel both without making them mean? And I'm talking about observation, not judging here oh that's interesting I'm a little bit full maybe I had a little bit you know a little bit too much oh I'm still hungry after lunch and not going oh I'm still hungry I'll just wait for my next meal going oh what can I have that will fill that gap oh I'm feeling tired I'll rest more oh I'm feeling you know I feel like I've got loads of energy let me go out for a run again I'm not a runner I wouldn't do that but I might go do something else um but do you see what I mean like it's only when we're able to do those things that we're able to not rely on food if we don't have alternative solutions we're always going to come back to what we know because that's the way we've done it for so long Mm. that's an interesting thought isn't it noticing noticing that i feel full like noticing that i'm hungry i i'm now starting to notice that and this is a new thing for me but sometimes i like oh i I need a little snack 
because I'm, I'm having a sugar dip. And, and in the past, when I've been through many of my many numerous personal trainers who got me into, as we used to call it, fighting shape, I would now call it being hungry shape. Um, we would, they'd go, that's just because your sugar blood's all over the place and you need to stop eating this and stop eating that and just have chicken. I lived on chicken and broccoli for about a year. I, don't, I mean, I don't eat meat anymore. And it was just, it just made me feel sick. I'd be like, I stank of chicken and broccoli. And that is the all, it was that and no carbs ever. So I literally would feel like I was dying and I was pushing myself at the gym. And it was just, when I look back now, I just think I was just punishing myself to get into this ideal body that somebody, some somebody, who's the somebody, that's what I want to, who's the somebody that decided I was supposed to look like X? Daniel, what are you going to say? I, I was just going to say, you know, it's so, there's so much that we take on that is about other people's opinions of us rather than actually being more interested in what our opinion is of ourselves. Mm -hmm. I think uh, to quote the amazing RuPaul, he said, whatever someone else's opinion of, of you is, is their business. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I think that's so spot on, so spot on. But we do, you know, our diet culture is driven by what everyone else thinks of you isn't it you know Definitely. what you're going to look like in that swimsuit on that holiday that you probably can't afford to go on anyway yeah. <laughs> and also know? you know something else I think it's really important that RuPaul, RuPaul says a lot is if you can't love yourself how are you going to love anybody else and yet we're so used to externalizing as you said judged by others and are we deemed to be lovable am I deemed to be worthy based on our jobs based on what we look like based on you know what people say around us it's prioritizing your own work that's important it's prioritizing yourself and what you need and learning what that is because as we said earlier you know when people start these journeys they have no idea what feels good you know for them what do you mean feel my emotionality like if I say to clients you know when they just started working with me what do you mean I need to feel my feelings like I'm bawling my eyes out is that not enough like in actually learning to move through emotionality and, and I think this is really the the key is learning to observe and have that awareness which I'm sure you practice through meditation and things but actually applying that in day-to-day -day life can you observe hunger and just let it be hunger in the same way can you just observe tiredness and just let it be that we because of society's pressures and what they tell us about these things the laziness the greed the um you know how good it is to be hungry and all of those things ultimately it just is what it is sadness is just sadness that's all it is there's nothing more to it than that it's not good or bad and in the same way that there's no food really that's good or bad follow what feels good for your body but ultimately you're not gonna be able to do that until you know what feels good and how to connect that you, you just said a very controversial thing there. You what just did I said, say? Oh, no. <laughs> that no food is bad. Yeah. Oh, my God. Is that controversial? <laughs> you know, I think it is for a lot of people. I know a lot. I know so many food shamers that are like, if I was to pick up a packet of gluten-free pasta and the Sainsbury's or whatever, they would be like, ooh. So yeah. let me ask you. Go on. If you if you restrict chocolate all day what are you going to have when you feel rubbish what are you going to crave definitely chocolate and you're not going to have a couple of squares right no i'll have a family size dairy milk because and i don't, you, and I don't even like it <laughs> because we we binge on the things that we restrict 
Mm. So if we neutralize all food, that doesn't mean eating chocolate seven times a day, albeit it might be for some people to start with in their journey. And that's okay. I had to eat ice cream every day for about two years until ice cream just became food. Um, And that's something that we do as part of the recovery process, really normalizing because until food becomes just food, you can't eat intuitively because again, there's those labels on it, but food really, really is just food. And if you learn to listen to your body, it will tell you what it needs. I used to have when I was going, when I was recovering from anorexia, I craved sweet corn. Like I would have it, I'd open a can of sweet corn and like with a spoon, drain it and eat it. From, and I thought, what on earth is this? But it's what my body needed. It had, I think I went to the doctors, I think it had something like magnesium or zinc or something. There was, a, there was actually a nutrient that they could tell was missing from a blood panel that I was then able, that was probably why I was craving that. Like how insane is that, that our body can actually change our palate and our tastes and the things that we desire to match what we need physiologically like it just I just think bodies are crazy clever and I don't understand why we don't trust them because but then having said that I have been on this journey so I do really know um but I now that I've got here I just I just think it's madness to not mm. oh and that's that's true about everything isn't it it's not just food it's how I'm just straight I don't know who said it but how we do anything is how we do everything so we you know we if we slow down enough to notice and that's for me the thing for me that make the difference made the difference was slowing down so i if there's space around any activity you've got time to feel into how you're responding to that activity whether it be your workload your your relationship your food on your plate how your body's feeling in that moment if you're rushing through it and you're not present you can't sense you can't feel into it and so i think most people that i encounter live outside of their body they're entirely disconnected the body is this vehicle that gets them to this place they're trying to get to and they're never going to get there because the goalpost is always going to change because media is constantly changing how we're supposed to be we're supposed to be um rich and hardworking and skinny and then next year we're supposed to be rich and skinny but with a huge arse and then next year we're supposed to be not worrying about our money and be mindful but be very slim and be a vegan and it's constantly changing depending on who's trying to sell what and I really feel like a lot of this stuff that we're being pushed is just about making money for somebody at the top of some huge I don't know I don't know what the word I'm looking for is this huge corporation that's selling us, I don't know, Weight Watchers diet bars or slim. I mean, my husband did slim fast loads of times. And I mean, not since I've met him, thank God, but he just, I think he lost five stone and gained seven about three times. It's just, it's just, it's just setting you up for failure, isn't it? What, what, what's your thought on that? Where's it coming from? Yeah, so the diet industry in the UK is worth about two billion a year. Wow. And worldwide, it's worth about I think it's seventy-one billion worldwide. So when you talk about people making money off the back of people's pain, yeah, they're making a lot of money, and they do so by making people feel horrendous and selling them the dream. And physiologically, being a nutritionist as well. Um, what we know from studies and research is that 95, I think it's 94% to be correct, 94% people that go on diets will gain and, and lose weight will put on that weight again and more within four or five years, I think it is. So they go through this period of weight loss, be giving a solution, which normally is something that's unsustainable long term. 
um, and that doesn't work for them, doesn't teach them how to cope with their emotionality and, and cope with life and, and how to actually eat for their body, gives them a plan that then they have to come off of at some point. And then, of course, they go back to the way that they were eating, the coping tools that they were using. And I think probably I would assume that the 6% that are remaining are people that have disordered or, or eating disorders um, that, that do have that 6% who do maintain that. But if you think about that, that's 94 percent of people who go on diets so that's how many how many i know i've done it i'm sure that we know that most people listening have gone on a diet and then been made to feel when they do gain the weight that it's their fault that they weren't they didn't have enough willpower they weren't motivated enough they didn't put enough time in it's not supposed to work the diet industry banks on the fact that it won't work because they'll, wow. they'll get it from you again next time you'll pay for the next subscription the next plan god i didn't even think of it like that if you, if you look at as well, the, you know, the way that the diet industry presents itself, it is very glossy, happy. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no connection or there, there might be a very, very super level mention of mental health, but there's no, there's no connection made between actually people's trauma upsets disturbances that they may have had in their lives grief that they're probably going through for any any anything that's changed in their life and how they're eating and as you've said Chloe it feels like that is the place to start because actually if you change someone's mindset around themselves and allow them to feel like they can love themselves then they'll feed themselves in the way that is in, in 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 alignment with their mind yeah and that and then you have the flexibility for that to be whatever is healthy for your body yeah and i think this is something that i just want to reiterate is that eating disorders and disordered eating is not about the food mm. it has nothing mm. to do with the food mm. and with diet culture tells you that the, it's the food's fault the food is the problem it has nothing to do with it at all and we see you know i see people selling diets to people who struggle with sugar addiction which isn't really a thing physiologically like um it's, it's because they have they they find comfort through through food they, they don't feel loved enough they don't they didn't maybe didn't have a stable upbringing where they had disorganized attachment to parents so they love themselves in the way that they know how and that comfort comes in different forms for different people so by and then you know people say well if you've got sugar addiction then then ban all sugar just ban it. Don't have it anymore. What's that person going to binge on? You know, physiologically, as I explained earlier, we binge on the things that we are, that have been told they're scarce, that are scarce, you know, that scarcity response, that, that famine response kicks in. So when we do have it available, we're going to shove our faces. And then we still blame the person and blame the food when that that's what the body's supposed to do. Mm. Yeah, it's about the emo emotionality, the body, the trauma first, always 100%. I'm really interested to hear, Clary, your perspective on the way that we use language around appraising people or shaming people because of their body size. And it's something that I've experienced quite a lot. Um, people saying, oh, you look really skinny. Or, you know, what have you been doing? <laughs> As though, it's like, as, as though it's something that I've been working towards. 
But equally, on the other hand, times when my body has been bigger, oh, what have you done? You, you know, you've clearly been binging or you've, you know, at the time I was drinking a hell of a lot and taking a lot of drugs. So, you know, my body was in the process of trying to, you know, clean itself out, which, you know, created more fat in my body. Um, but the language that people use around almost kind of applauding people because they've dropped weight, but actually not realizing that that person could have dropped weight because they're actually significantly ill. Yeah. That person also could have put on weight, like you said, because they've got really ill. And actually, you know, this association that we make with people and feeling it's okay to even comment on anyone's mm -hmm. body shape or size. I'm really, I'm really intrigued to hear what you want to, you're going to say about that. I think it is so destructive and I, I see it all the time, you know, especially when you've had an eating disorder, I think your weight becomes common conversation. Like how much weight have you gained? Oh, that's interesting. Oh, you bet. I bet you eat this and I bet you eat that. And my weight became, you know, conversation for a lot of people, people that weren't even really that close to me. And I think it is really, really destructive because when, if you're telling somebody, Oh my God, you look so good. Haven't you lost weight? We are, putting so excuse the pun putting more weight on this is we're loading those words if you've lost weight then that's great well done you as you said that person could be ill but they could also be grieving they could also have had a traumatic life experience that means that they're too anxious to actually eat they could have been really really poorly you know have physical as well as emotional and, and mental um people gain weight for lots of different reasons as well in the same respect you know I see a lot of clients that come in um, to work with me who are in much larger bodies as a result of the trauma they've been through like the body is so clever and almost puts in a physical armor to protect themselves from the pain that they've experienced ultimately in the real world it's that barrier between the external and the internal why is it anybody's business why mm. does it matter ultimately it doesn't make me any more kind or any more calm well, do you know what I mean it doesn't change being in the different meat soup doesn't change who I intrinsically am in the same way that it doesn't for any three of us on here or anybody in this world ultimately um and the way that we particularly I think more so with people in larger bodies the, the fat phobia is so ingrained and endemic in our society to the point that now that you know it's become it's it's been a problem in healthcare for a very very long time and something that we're really realizing more and more but what we also forget is that by shaming people for their coping behaviors what, what are they going to use to cope mm. you know if people are struggling with emotional eating because that's one of their coping tools and then that, and we see a, a correlation huge correlation between shame and use of unhealthy coping tools but again whether that be food addiction it doesn't matter you know ultimately they're not it's about the internal struggles then that person might get into a larger and larger body and I think this is a real push that we need to make is really seeing beyond the body we're in and that doesn't mean that being in a in a larger body is always the healthiest choice for that individual depending on where your set point is depending on where your body feels better because ultimately that's what's important but we're not going to help people get to that place by blaming them, by shaming them, by calling them all the names in the sun. And, and ultimately, by withdrawing the help that they really need. I see people um, having disordered eating all across the weight spectrum. And yet we give people support for disordered eating, eating disorders if their BMI is under 17 and a half. 
it's not about the weight, it's not about the food, but we make it like that everywhere, not just in society and how we call each other, but you know, it goes so much further beyond that. It's so endemic in, in our in our culture and, and governments and policies and all sorts of things. And so I think it, you know, it's so damaging in so many ways. And since we've had this um, focus on weight and shape, you know, especially post-war really I think is really when the the processed food and our, our relationship with food changed you know quite dramatically we've actually seen a correlation between the bigger the diet industry has grown the more we struggle with maintaining a healthy shape and size whatever that may be for us you know our, our weight as a population is rising not decreasing and what that wouldn't you know if diet if diets were working and that was the way that we should be moving as a society we wouldn't have that happening i don't know if i've answered your question Daniel, roundabouts so. no absolutely no i just mm. think you know i just think we just have to be so careful about not letting thoughts that we have upset other people and also so challenging ourselves you know something that i've really had to do is really challenge my own you know, not seeing that as a representation of them, but going, right, okay, why did I think that thought? Where does that come from? That is yeah. my problem to solve. Whether it's, you know, whether those thoughts are about race, gender, size, you know, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, that's my programming and programming that I need to fix. That's mm -hmm. how I see it. Mm -hmm. um, and really challenging ourselves to do that work, I think is so important, you know, and, and yet I talk about fat phobia and actually change, you know, really challenging our own fat phobia, but ultimately that's not the only place we need to do it, right? Language is something that is misused and used with, and I think intention is really, really important here. Like I don't really mind what people say to me as long as the intention is supportive. If people get it wrong, they say the wrong thing, you know, I'm personally, as long as they're, as long as they're doing it for the right reasons and a lack of education, whatever that may be fine. If somebody is trying to spread hate and malice, like that's just not okay. And that's, you know, where I think, you know, obviously there's a point of education where we have to go through with everybody and, you know, explain the impacts of their actions. Um, my partner always says something which, which really resonates with me, which is you could do whatever you like, as long as it doesn't affect other people. And I think that's it's very logical and not very emotional most of the time, but that's just such a wise thing to think. And I really do think that if, you know, if our words are going to affect people, you know, without that intention of love and, and you know, ultimately we're all still human, just don't say anything. Challenge yourself on why you're thinking it. What do you need to work on? As such, that's such a, that's such a wise, um, deep, and rich thing to say because ultimately it you know for ourselves and for others it comes down to compassion having self-compassion and compassion for others and i know for me the turning point for me with my food journey was self-compassion i cared about myself enough to stop hating myself for how i looked or for what i wanted to put in my mouth and uh and then i started to notice because i cared for myself how much other people needed us all to look a certain way so they felt safe you know it's very much you're in my club if you fit into this way of looking this way of living this social socioeconomic background follow the same teachers of your yogi or whatever and actually it's very diminishing it's very lacking in compassion and i guess what i'm hearing from you is let's be compassionate to ourselves 
definitely and I think ultimately learning to love ourselves and love our bodies is how it we change from existing to really living um I hated myself for a very very long time I blamed myself for the abuse I thought it was my fault as quite a lot of abuse survivors do um I thought the eating disorder was my fault I blamed myself for not being able to get out of it despite all the treatment I had not realizing that probably it was trying to fix the food and not trying to fix the root problem um and I hated my body. I hated my body for what it did. And then when I gained weight as part of my anorexia recovery and developed my autoimmune conditions, I hated my body even more. Mm-hmm. I've done all of this to get better and you screwed me over. And that's really how I felt for a very, very long time. Not only, you know, towards myself. I didn't like who I was as a person. I didn't like how I looked. Um, and when we are able to, through learning to understand ourselves, see ourselves as the children that we were, when often, you know, all, a lot of these problems are, you know, created, albeit not always, um, and having that ability to observe and, and have that awareness of what the experiences we've been through that made us who, are, who we are, and ultimately that pain then becomes our purpose, it becomes a new way of seeing the world. And, it, and hopefully, you know, when that person, you know, and, and often the people I work with are so good at loving other people and giving themselves away, giving their energy away, their time away, because they don't think they deserve that. And, you know, practicing self-care, really looking after yourself, looking after your body in a way that's supportive with the intention of loving it is ultimately where you then have the fuel, the energy to, to live life and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You can't do that when you're running on empty and when you hate yourself. It doesn't it doesn't it can't, it's not possible. Mm. Chloe, the work that you do with people clearly, you know, you 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 support them in a very very grounded and very healthy way. And to do that, you must really need to allow that to be done within yourself and you must have people around you that are supporting you in that way as well and I think it's really important for people to recognize that actually that that is the underpinning of you being able to do that work is that you take care of yourself and that you've worked through some of the stuff you know to work through (laughs) yeah because it doesn't just go away just because you've named it does it you know it continues to affect us every day day in day out that's what trauma is you know we can't we can't, if we deny it, it will become something bigger than what it is if we are aware of it every moment of every day. Yeah. And I'd be really interested to hear about how you take care of yourself and what your sort of regime is. Um, and, you know, sometimes when we ask people this question, it can be the most interesting things. So I'm really intrigued yeah. to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, it's changed quite a lot, actually, because um, I'd actually say lockdown has been one of the hardest times for me as a practitioner because I'm carrying more pain from other people. Like I carry, I, I really see myself as a vessel to help people heal. And in doing that, I can't help but absorb some of that, as an, especially as an empath. You know, I, I, I do intuitive coaching. I feel that pain that they're going through. Um and during a pandemic, I haven't had the same access to the things I did have. Um, I still work with a coach. I still see them every week to, do, to continue, whether that's, you know, offloading some of the baggage I'm carrying from my own life, from other people's lives, as well as having things like I have Reiki, um, I do breath work. You know, I really, my energy is my job, um, you know, to keep my energy clear. I cannot coach with, with 
you know carrying lots of stuff it's just I can't do it so really keeping my energy clear is part of my job I used to practice yoga twice three times a week and that was something that I really really loved something that went out the window quite quickly when I went into lockdown unfortunately because I, I you know my yeah I don't know if you can see but my yoga mat behind me now that I'm on video with you guys is is in my office and that real mix of of energies I found I found really really difficult so my self-care has had to adapt and change and I definitely have you know, I, I work with with coaches and um, do a lot of energy work um, because I don't feel I'm able to clear my energy in the same way. And I'm actually working with more clients than I ever have done because people are struggling so much more during this time. Um, but every day I meditate before I get out of bed. I journal, I do free writing as well as doing like more sort of structured journal practices. I often then do something like breath work or emotional freedom techniques. So like tapping is often how it's referred to. Um, and then in the evening, you know, then doing the practices I need to do to clear my energy off and use like sort of visualizations of bubbles to give me to give me some level of energetic protection during the day. Currently have a crystal in my bra. That's part of myself and my self-care. Um, I love reading. It's a real escape for me. Um, I love reading novels um any novels lockdown has been traditionally like trashy rom-coms where girl meets boy boy meets girl they can't be together they then go through this trial and tribulation and then surprisingly they end up at the end I've read about 17 books that follow the same sort of premise as well as reading like more sort of you know better written and more sort of dramatic books um but that's a real solace to me as, as well as meditation and journaling in the evening um as well you do a lot and you do lots of stuff to take care of yourself and actually what i'm hearing is you're intuitive about that care plan it so, has to be yeah. yeah and for each person it's going to look different isn't it some people listening to that will go oh my god i don't want to do any of that but i'll go for a, a hike or i'll watch my husband would say i'll watch the footy although his team just about got relegated yesterday he's in deep depression deep deep depression so probably that'll be straight to the fridge i'm gonna be going to listen to this podcast so <laughs> so we can get him to feel his feelings about his team being relegated rather than eat them away oh, when you're doing trauma work and energy work for five six hours a day with other people it, it, it i see it as part of my job i can't do it without it I, it's not good for me I, I believe me there have been times where i've tried <laughs> or where things have gone wrong my dad was really poorly with um covid march last year and i literally went sod it to self-care you know I couldn't sit with my feelings but I couldn't sit with my feelings how can I then sit with other people's feelings like you can't right you can't do one without the other um and so there have been you know I, I say this to, because I think it's really important that we remember that nothing is perfect food self-care energy work you know ultimately my self-care routine is great most days but I'm not I'm, I'm still human I still have sod it moments from time to time you have a four-week program. Could you just in brief, uh, sort of coming overrun, but that's all good. Um, <laughs> coming to, um, you have a four-week program that people can jump onto and work with you. Could you just say in brief a little bit about that? Yeah, so my Food Freedom Breakthrough Program is a four-week completely online course. Um, so I've made it as, as accessible as I can without people needing to use my time, um, which obviously has a higher investment with it. Um, and I take people through the four pillars of really learning to connect themselves, observe their, their feelings, learn to lean into their identity, who they really are, and unlock some of those limiting beliefs and things.
things that they have and it's 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 a lovely lovely program um to help people really come back to themselves and, and step away from focusing on the food being the issue and, and do that internal work um yeah i also have a food freedom tribe which is my free facebook group so if people type food freedom tribe on facebook i do free workshops and things on there um every couple of weeks well, that's wonderful. We'll make sure we have those links up around the social media, around the Instagram, uh, around the um, podcast, sorry. And I, I would urge people to jump onto your Instagram page. We'll also have that link because I, I go on it every day now. I have a little look. <laughs> See what, what you said to give me a bit of inspiration. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been so interesting and uh, reassuring. I feel like I'm on the right path. And um, I really hope that people listening, maybe just take a pause and think about, maybe I could do this differently. And, and to be free, to be free from food guilt would be incredible. It is incredible. So I, I hope that's the case for, for some of our listeners. Daniel, I'm gonna pass back to you. Thank you, Dom. Yeah, I just reiterate completely what Dom said, Chloe. Just, it's, it's wonderful to hear someone that, you know, is, is, is using the experience to be able to support others. I think it's so important that, you know, that, that we are open and honest about what's happened in our lives and that something so positive has come out of it for you and that you're now able to support so many other people in so many different ways. I just think, yeah, that's what this podcast is all about. So thank you so much for sharing and being with us here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you, Chloe. So um, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know. Um, you can go onto the Apple podcast section and leave us a review. If there's things you didn't like about it, please do let us know. We're always looking to hear your feedback and ways that we can improve. Or if there's subjects or people that you want us to interview, please do let us know as well. Um, Next week actually is the last recording of this season and we've got an old friend of Dawn and I's called Lisa Horwell coming in and we'll be talking all around yoga for addiction recovery and Lisa's amazing work that she's doing with um, lots and lots of retreats, sorry, um, recovery centres in, in Essex um, and Lisa's journey really into yoga and through her addiction. So really looking forward to chatting with her. Um, new season is going to start in September um, and we've got some great people lined up but I will tell you about them maybe next week if we get confirmations from people <laughs> so until next time thank you Kyrie and thank you Dawn and it's been lovely to be here with you thank you bye everyone